beginning of this month, we began this series, First Things First, in part in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. There, Jesus writes a letter to the church in the ancient city of Sardis, and he opens his words to them saying this, and to the angel of the church at Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know the hour that I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Jesus says there to that church, strengthen the things which remain that are about to die. Looking at the landscape of Christianity in the West here, as we are now one fifth into the 21st century, it can be a little bit disconcerting. It can sometimes feel as though the church is like this church in Revelation chapter three, a church that is almost as if it is on life support. And that's a concerning thing to see, especially for someone like me who is a pastor and it's my calling to, to minister to a church and within a local church and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So to see the state of the church in the West here in 2021 is disconcerting. In 1864, a young German at the age of about 20 years old, he began studying theology and classical philology at the University of Bonn in Germany. His hopes were to become a minister, but after only one semester, he stopped his theological studies and eventually he lost his faith. Nearly 20 years after that, he was then in his late 30s, he wrote this story, this parable, almost a poetic sort of parable. He writes this, have you not heard of the madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours and ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Immigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? He cried. I will tell you. We have killed him. You and I, all of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How did we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent. He looked again at his listeners and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground and it broke into pieces and went out. I've come too early, he said. My time has not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It is yet to reach the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed still more distant from them than most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. 
It has been related further that on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem eternum deo, led out and called to account. He is said always to have replied nothing but, what after all are these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchers of God? The author of those words published them in 1882. And then he died as a madman on August 25th, 1900. 121 years ago this last Wednesday. He died in a mental asylum in Weimar, Germany. His name was Friedrich Nietzsche. The madman proclaimed there in his parable, in his story, he proclaimed the death of God. He said, we have killed God and what will become of us the murderers of God? When he wrote those words, he recognized that he had come too soon for the people that were living in his day at the end of the 19th century. The culture of his time, they didn't really know how to respond to the madman other than to laugh at him and to mock. But the madman could see that this homicide of God would result in untold horrors. And the 20th century showed us what it looks like to live in a advanced and technological society and culture without the recognition of God in a culture that has effectively killed God. Germany at the turn of the 20th century, right as Friedrich Nietzsche died, at the turn of the 20th century, Germany was possibly the most progressive and intellectually advanced society of the modern era. It had been the center of the Christian Reformation and the epicenter for the launch of modern missions. It was a center for the Enlightenment, and from within its borders came inventions like the printing press and the bicycle, the automobile, the diesel engine. Aspirin was invented in Germany. Rocket engines and many other world-changing innovations came from Germany. And then in the 20th century, Germany also innovated in extreme forms of misery, inventing death camps and gas chambers. And they helped plunge the entire world into two world wars that resulted in the deaths of more than 130 million people. Ideas have consequences. And we are living with the reverberations of the philosophy of Nietzsche. And not just Nietzsche, but other philosophers like him. These reverberations are still affecting Western culture today. Why did I set out to do this series, First Things First? In many ways, it's because of a concern that I have. It's because I'm afraid that we don't really learn very well from history. Because I'm afraid that though there were scattered revivals of Christianity in Western culture during the second half of the 20th century. And some of you that maybe will watch this, you experienced some forms of those revivals. I think of the Jesus People movement of the 1960s, 1970s, and extending into the 1980s even. So there were small revivals in the second half of the 20th century. But we are once again at this moment here in 2021, it seems in so many ways like we are on the path of the madman. And I'm convinced that the only hope for our culture, and this is really important, the only hope for our culture, and not just the only hope for our culture, but really the only hope for the world, still is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings. I found it interesting just about a week and a half ago, I was listening to a podcast interview, not a Christian podcast interview at all, and the interview was with an individual who has been writing for years for different publications like Newsweek and all kinds of different publications, Slate. And this gentleman, he's probably in his late 50s, if not his middle 60s. I don't know about how old he is, um, but he is a homosexual man. Uh, he's lived with HIV for decades. His name is Andrew, Andrew Sullivan. And in the interview, the interviewer was asking Andrew Sullivan, what, what do you think is going to help the culture? And this guy, he said, I think the only hope for our culture is a revival of Christianity. Now, it's an amazing thing when an individual like Andrew Sullivan is observing that the only hope for our culture is a revival of Christianity. That should say something to us. So as a pastor, you'd expect for me to say that the only hope for our culture and for the world is a revival of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But to hear other people who really don't have a connection to 
the scriptures saying those things is pretty phenomenal. But though I am very often accused of being maybe a little too optimistic, the last 17 months have caused me and many other people as well to be concerned that the church in the West is not in a great place. And before there can be the thought of hope and the thought for revival in the West, the revival needs to take place within the church first. And far too many Christians, I'm afraid, far too many Christians have in some way almost mourned the death of God themselves. They are living as though God were dead. So we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded that God both died and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. We need to be reminded that it is still reasonable to believe the things of scripture because we're living at a time and in a culture where people are deconstructing their faith. And as they are, they're questioning whether or not they believe in the God of the Bible or they believe in God at all. And so a lot of people are challenged, as was Friedrich Nietzsche, who he started out on a path to become a minister. And then through some of the things that he went through, it brought him to a place of a denial of God, that God even existed. So we, we have to come back and consider, are these things reasonable? And of course, I believe it's reasonable and rational to believe the things that we read in Scripture. And so this is a big part of the reason why I've been going through the things that I've been teaching over the last several weeks in this series. You see, though the narrative of our time is that there is no God and that everything that we see in the universe came to be in a massive explosion, the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago. I believe that there is evidence that supports a much better story than the story that we are often told by our culture. We have what I would call a tale of two stories. One of the stories says that everything happened by random chance and mutation over billions of years. Everything came from chaos and ordered itself over billions of years. Another story says everything was designed and created for a purpose by a superordinate and superintending mind. One story says that there is no ultimate purpose or order or end to the things that exist. And the other story says that these things were ordered and made for a reason. One story leads to what one author called zero-point nihilism, a feeling that there is no point to anything, a feeling that there is nothing of value, no true or objective knowledge, no objective morality or ethics, no objective beauty, a view that ultimately says there's no meaning to anything and therefore there is no hope. But the other worldview, it posits the existence of God and it posits the possibility of love and joy, peace, goodness, purpose, destiny, and hope. Now, if given the option, which story would you choose? I know for certain which story I would want, which one I would choose, especially when presented with the seeming hopelessness of a broken world in which things like Haitian earthquakes and Taliban warlords exist. But it is entirely logical, I guess you could say, to say, as many have in our day, as Friedrich Nietzsche did 140 years ago, it's entirely logical for people to look at all the things that they are presented with by our modern and even postmodern society and say, I would like to believe these things. I'd like to believe this story that Christians tell and believe from the scriptures. But many people, like Friedrich Nietzsche, would say, it sounds like a fiction. I, I would love to believe it, but it sounds like a fiction in light of all of the discrediting evidence in science. It sounds like a fantasy. It seems like if you believe these things, you're pretending that everything is glorious and the band just continues to play on as you stand on the decks of a sinking Titanic. There are those who will, will say science has discredited the story that we want to believe, right? That, that's, that's what science sees. That's what postmodern people believe. But I don't think so. I have presented to you over the last several weeks my, my views as to why I think that these things are reasonable to believe. But I also presented to you the, the chief story of science in my message last time. And I will admit that 
As I did, I did it with a tone of mockery as I was reading the things from the Institute of Physics website. And I was talking about 13.8 billion years ago. We know that this happened in this way and one second after it happened. You know, I was a little mocking in my tone. Uh, no less mocking in my tone than those that reject God often use the kind of mockery that they use when they speak about Christianity. But I'll admit that I was maybe a little bit guilty of being a little bit uh, like presenting a straw man, mockingly presenting a straw man that the scientific assumptions of our time often present. And that's because they, they sound a little science fiction-y, if you will. When you read the story that is presented on physics websites or in science textbooks, it, it sounds just as much science fiction as the way that people put forward the story of scripture and the way that the tone that they put it in. So last week after giving that message and after kind of straw manning the view that is put forth by a lot of science textbooks today, I had a great conversation here at the church on Sunday with a young man and his mom who had some questions about my, my kind of mocking tone. So before I continue with where I want to go this week, what I want to talk about this week, I want to answer an objection and a valid question that kind of came to me through that conversation with this young man and his mom. And the valid question is this, in mocking the story of what I would call 21st century Western scientism, the story that begins 13.8 billion years ago, there was this giant big bang. In mocking that story, the valid question is this, are you saying that we shouldn't consider the findings of science as being of value with, from within the scientific community? And the answer to that is no. I'm not saying that we shouldn't value what the scientific community is able to put forward. In fact, I think that the scientific method is amazing. And the results of scientific endeavor, in so many ways, they speak for themselves over the last 500 years. The discoveries that have been made and the outcomes of all of these scientific discoveries are absolutely amazing. But here's the problem. It isn't an issue of the scientific method or the process of maybe what we'd say doing science. That's not the issue. Rather, it is an issue of what I would call the a priori assumptions that many researchers make when they engage in scientific study. Now, what do I mean by that? Because those terms are maybe not something that you've, you've heard before. When I talk about an a priori assumption, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about where you begin your scientific study from and what are the fixed assumptions that you basically have before you start your scientific research. And the fixed assumption that many people who engage in scientific research today have, the a priori assumption that they have is, is simply this, there is no God. Without a shadow of a doubt, they will say there is no such thing as a superintending, superordinate creating being that we would call God. And if you begin your research by saying that's not possible, there's no possibility, there's no place for a God hypothesis, then I would say that you're always going to end up with skewed observations. If that's your starting point, you're going to have a, a biased outcome. Ergo, every time you come to a point in your scientific study that seems to infer that there is design or and intent behind the things that you're observing in biology or astronomy or physics or mathematics or whatever field of study you are studying, every time you come to a point where the science seems to be telling you that there, there looks like there's design by this. And listen, that happens a lot in science. There are a lot of times where scientific study brings you to the point of saying, man, this really looks designed. And then those who start from this point of there's no God, they have to try and find a way to explain away why it looks like there is design in whatever it is that they're studying. So every time you come to a point of realizing, well, it looks like there's design in biology or physics or so on, then you default back to this assumption. Well, there's no God, so it can't possibly be that. And therefore, your conclusions are always going to be skewed. And that is, I believe, where we are at in this moment in 21st century Western culture. I believe that it is important for people who are well-meaning in their research to leave room in their studies for the possibility of a God hypothesis. And on this point, 
if you're interested in these things, I would highly recommend a book that just came out recently within the last six months by an author by the name of Dr. Stephen Meyer, and it's called The Return of the God Hypothesis. Really good book on this point. Um, he is a research scientist, and he's also a philosopher, and he digs into these important things, and he reveals some of what science in the last 25 years has revealed that points back to the fact that there is a God. So I believe that it's important for us to always leave room in our studies for the possibility of the God hypothesis because as the scriptures reveal, as I've pointed out pretty much every week over the last several weeks, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth God's handiwork. Psalm 19 verse 1, general revelation. The heavens, they show us that there is a God and not just Psalm 19, but then in the New Testament book, of Romans. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even God's eternal power and Godhead, so that man is without excuse. Creation and consciousness and conscience reveal to us, I believe, that God is. And not just that he exists, but he is powerful and he is intelligent and our awareness of ourselves through consciousness, and not just our awareness of ourselves, but our awareness of our place in this universe, those things lead us, I believe when we really think about these things, they lead us to expect that there is a God who is good, a God who is true, a God who is loving and just, and a God who desires relationship with us. And then as you begin to consider these things and look into the scriptures, you consider the general revelation of creation and consciousness and conscience. As you begin to look into these things, you find that this God has revealed himself, not just through general revelation, but I also, I also believe through special revelation. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, I, I mentioned this the last couple of weeks, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. He has revealed himself to us in intelligible ways so that we would know him, so that we would know what he is like, his nature, so that we would know what he likes, his will. And not only that we would know his nature and his will, but that we might know him relationally. And so that we would be able to engage with him in a relational way. What the Bible describes is not just the, the nature of God, what he's like, and the will of God, what he likes, but the Bible also tells us the story that God came to the earth as the man Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. Philippians chapter 2, I believe I mentioned this last week, Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7, it says that Jesus being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness as a man. And then not just in Philippians chapter 2, but also in the Gospel of John chapter 1, the opening words of the Gospel of John chapter 1, there we read, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The, the word, word here is the Greek word logos. So in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. This logos is a person personified as a him there. And without him, the Logos, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. And then skipping down to verse 14, the author of the Gospel of John says, and the word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These are, I believe, the basic things that every Christian needs to know. First things first. If we are going to stand upon a firm foundation of faith, we've got to start with these things. What do we observe in general revelation through creation and consciousness and conscience? What do we find when we look into the special revelation of scripture? And what do we learn when we begin to draw near to and get to know God through Jesus Christ? This is the basics. This is where we need to start. So first things first. So we covered all of this last week and the week before. But as I closed last week, I shared with you that the proof point or the breaking point of this glorious story, because I will grant to the skeptic, these things that I'm talking about, they seem to be fanciful. They seem to be like, well, that's a great myth. That's a great fiction. But 
how do we assure ourselves or come to an assurance that these things are true? We want assurance. And the smart people of the Apostle Paul's day in the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17, if I can turn there, they, they wanted some proof as well. And Paul says there in verse 31 of chapter 17 that God has given us assurance that these things are true. The, the things of Scripture, the special revelation of Scripture. He has given us assurance to all of this through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the proof point or the breaking point of this glorious story of God personally revealing himself to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proof point or the breaking point hangs upon the resurrection of Christ. How can we know? How can we be assured that this story, this excellent story about God coming down to us is actually true? And not just true because, well, the Bible tells me so. Because for a long time, a lot of Christians, they would just say, well, I believe these things because the Bible tells me so. And so what I'm talking about here, what I've been driving home for the last several weeks is what we would call apologetics. The Apostle Peter, in one of his letters, he says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. That word defense, always be ready to give a defense is the Greek word apologia or apologia. And that is where we get this idea of apologetics. And so what, what I'm doing here is giving you an apologetic for why we believe what we believe. And so we don't just say, well, I believe it because the Bible tells me so. There are a lot of things that we know and believe because of what we find in Scripture. But how do we establish that this is valid and this is worth me investing time and discovering what it has to say? So what I'm hoping to do in the time that I have remaining today, and it's going to be in a relatively brief way because I've been putting so much into this. But what I'm hoping to do today is two things. First, I want to talk about the evidence for the resurrection because at the end of my message last time, I said that that's what we were going to do today is to consider the evidence beyond simply saying, well, the Bible tells me so. What is the evidence that these things are true? Because Paul said in Acts 17 verse 31, God has given us assurance, evidence by raising Jesus from the dead. So First thing I want to do is to consider the evidence for the resurrection. Second thing I want to do in closing this message today and closing this series called First Things First is, is to basically return to where I started this at the very beginning five weeks ago. And, and that started with those verses in Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 that there Jesus says to the church at Sardis, strengthen the things which remain. And I feel that it is necessary for us who believe these things. If you are a believer in the scriptures, a believer in Christ, it's important for us to strengthen the things which remain and to be strengthened in our faith and to be able to move forward in our relationship and walk with Jesus. And this good news, what we call the gospel, the good news about Jesus coming to this world to bring salvation, it requires a response on your part. It requires action on my part. So, but first, the evidence that I believe makes this faith in the resurrection reasonable. What is the evidence? And for this, I want to recommend to you a book. And not just the book, but an author who wrote this book to consider this important topic. So the leading expert on the historic evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a man by the name of Gary Habermas. Gary Habermas has an MA in philosophical theology and Christian thought from the University of Detroit, and he also has a PhD in history and philosophy of religion from Michigan State University. And he is a distinguished professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University, and he is a true expert on the topic of the resurrection. He wrote a book several years ago called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, in which he presents what he calls the minimal facts argument for the resurrection. When in 1976, Dr. Habermas presented and defended his doctoral thesis on a, a rational inquiry into the resurrection of Jesus, he was told by his advisors and those people that he would have to sit before to defend his thesis, he was told that you're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. We want you to talk with us about the resurrection of Jesus from sources outside of the Bible or beyond 
the Bible. And so that's what he set out to do, to receive his PhD. His research was all on the resurrection of Jesus and how we can establish that it happened beyond a reasonable doubt according to evidence beyond what the Bible has to say. And if you're interested in this, you can actually download all 350 plus pages of his doctoral thesis from 1976. It's online for free. You can find it as a PDF or you can send me an email and I'll send it to you if you want to read all 350 pages of this. But his book, which he wrote within the last decade and a half or so, the case for the resurrection of Jesus is a lot more accessible than the the thesis that he wrote. The thesis is very much in academic language. It's heavily footnoted. Um, but the book that he wrote, The Resurrection of Jesus, or The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, very accessible. You can find it online wherever books are sold. So Dr. Habermas, he presents what he calls the four plus one minimal facts of the resurrection, or five facts that he gives for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as evidence that is strongly attested in history and as he says, these things are granted by virtually all scholars on the subject, even those who are skeptical of the resurrection of Jesus. So pretty much all scholars, even skeptical scholars, they grant that these five facts, okay, these things they give a nod to and say these are true. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is that even skeptical scholars and historians agree to these five facts. And I want to give you the five facts from Dr. Habermas, which he calls the minimal facts for the resurrection. You can read about this in his book, The Case for the Resurrection. So the very first one is that Jesus of Nazareth was a real individual in history who died by crucifixion. This is important because there are some people who question whether or not there was a real Jesus of Nazareth who actually died by crucifixion 2,000 years ago. But there is a record of this. This is recorded in all four New Testament Gospels, but it is also recorded by a number of non-Christian extra-biblical sources as well, that Jesus of Nazareth was a real individual in history who died by crucifixion. Second fact that Dr. Hamer-Moss puts forward that even skeptical historians will recognize and grant as, yes, this, this we find to be true. Jesus' disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them alive. Again, I'm just giving you these brief points on the minimal facts. If you want a deeper research of this, get the book or read the PDF thesis from Dr. Habermas online. But this is really important. Jesus was a real man who lived 2,000 years ago and died by Roman crucifixion in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Second fact, Jesus' disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead and had appeared to them alive. Third one. A church persecutor and skeptic of the resurrection himself, Saul of Tarsus, reversed his skeptical position against the resurrection after he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus and was radically transformed to become one of the greatest preachers of Christ in the first century. And he's known in history as the Apostle Paul. So Saul of Tarsus was a skeptic of Christ. He was a skeptic of the resurrection and a persecutor of followers of Jesus. And then he had his own personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And this skeptic, Saul of Tarsus, turned apostle, Paul, and he became one of the greatest preachers. And always everywhere he went, what did he give as the evidence for his transformation and for the Christian faith? He always put forward the resurrection of Jesus. So so the first one, Jesus of Nazareth was a real man who was crucified 2,000 years ago by the Romans. Second one, the followers of Jesus all believed and taught that he had risen from the dead and appeared to them alive. Third, one of the great skeptics and early persecutors of followers of Jesus, he himself became a believer and preacher of Jesus, that Jesus was raised from the dead after he had an encounter with Jesus. Fourth, fourth fact, minimal fact that is given another skeptic, and the half-brother of Jesus, a man named James, was radically changed by an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Jesus' own family, his mother Mary, he had brothers and sisters, but one of his brothers, James, became a follower. They all were followers. They all became followers of Jesus, but James was an outspoken skeptic. All of them were concerned that their brother Jesus m might be crazy. 
And you see that in the Gospels. But then Jesus rose from the dead and James became a follower. And then the fifth and final fact that scholars agree upon is the tomb was empty. So now this is one of those things that if the Jews wanted to disprove the resurrection of Jesus or the Romans wanted to disprove the resurrection of Jesus in the first century, all they had to do was to produce the tomb with the body of Jesus and they couldn't because the tomb was empty. So these five facts are the minimal facts that we can see from history. And there's a lot more to this than just these things. But these five things, that Jesus was a real individual who lived 2,000 years ago and crucified by the Romans outside of Jerusalem, that his disciples believed that he rose from the dead. They went to their deaths proclaiming that he rose from the dead and appeared to them alive. That the skeptic Paul, Saul of Tarsus, became a believer after he encountered the resurrected Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was a skeptic who also became a believer after he encountered the resurrected Jesus and the tomb was empty. So these are the facts that you can zero in on. And Dr. Habermas, as well as other apologists, as they're called, uh, they have spoken extensively on this topic over the last quarter century, especially. And you can find tons of talks online or resources online. And when you consider the facts, I believe that it is rational, it is reasonable to conclude this important point. The evidence supports the claim that Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion and rose from the dead. It is reasonable to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that the evidence supports the claim that Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion and rose from the dead. And if you want to examine the evidence on your own, and I would encourage you to do so, if you are skeptical of these things, it's available. Go, go check out the evidence that you can read or watch online or listen to online. Uh, Gary Habermas's research is a great place to start. Also, another great place to start is Lee Strobel. He's written several books. He wrote The Case for Christianity and The Case for Faith, but he also wrote a book called The Case for the Resurrection. And um, he goes into some of these minimal facts arguments. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, Josh McDowell, his book, The Evidence Which Demands a Verdict, is kind of a classic. And Josh McDowell's son, Sean McDowell, is also an apologist who writes extensively on these things. Another one is a guy by the name of J. Warner Wallace. He has a great book called Cold Case Christianity. I would highly recommend these things to you. All of these are really great starting points and they're all very accessible. They're easy to understand. It's not using super deep theological language. <clears throat> it's kind of just at the popular level to understand these things. So if you're interested in that, check out these resources. We'll have some links below in the, uh, the show notes on this where you can find out some more about these things. So Super, super helpful things. YouTube videos abound, podcast talks abound. There's tons of resources on this. And as I said, I think it's reasonable. It's rational to conclude that the evidence supports the claim that Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion and he rose from the dead. But then what? Well, the evidence demands a response. Uh, just as um, Josh McDowell's book said, the evidence demands a verdict, I wanna say the, the evidence demands a response. And in light of all of these things, how shall we then live? Ideas have consequences. The ideas of Friedrich Nietzsche have had consequential reverberations for the last 150 years. And we are seeing those rever reverberations and effects continue today. So if it is true that there is no God, as Friedrich Nietzsche said, that God is dead, well, what does that mean? What's the effect of that? You know, that started, you start to really see that in the 19th century, this big call going out. And then, of course, during the same time as Nietzsche, you have um, Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species, comes out. And this kind of fuels this even more. You have this big, you know, kind of tumbling snowball of all these different scientific things happening and people looking at those and they start to question things about God. But they're, they're not very open to the evidence for God's existence. And so what are the effects? You fast forward 150, 170 years from the middle of the 19, uh, 19th century until now. What are the consequences of these views? Well, here's some things to think about. No meaning. We are having today a meaning crisis in the West. No morality. Look around our culture. Our culture is filled with questions about whether or not there is such a thing as objective morality. No one can say something is right or wrong. 
In fact, people will emphatically say it's wrong to say anything is wrong, even though they, rec they don't recognize the uh, self-defeating argument that they're giving. So th the consequences of this no God sort of view or the death of God, no meaning, no morality, no objective truth. That's exactly what postmodern postmodern thought is all about. No objective truth, no objective standards, no ultimate purpose, no hope. So if there is no resurrection, then this is where we come to. If there is no God, there's no meaning, there's no morality, there's no objective truth, no ultimate purpose, no hope. But if the resurrection is true, what's that mean? It means that what Jesus said about himself is true. It means that there is a God who is our Father. It means that God created you and he created me for a purpose. It means that life has meaning. It means that there is objective truth and goodness and beauty and morality. It means that there is hope for life beyond this life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And if all of these things are true, then the fact of the resurrection should radically transform everything about our lives and the way that we live. And that transformation, if it is true, and you have trusted in him, that transformation ought to be evident in us in an evidently powerful way. And this is where I began five weeks ago. I have been grieved, as I have shared, over the last 17 months of chaos, political chaos and racial chaos, medical chaos, world chaos, division, anger, anxiety, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I have been grieved because the transforming power of the resurrection, I think that it should be far more evident in us who believe. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Before, behold, all things have become new. The transforming power of the resurrection needs to be seen in a living church by a dying world. Let me say that again. This is so important. The transforming power of the resurrection needs to be seen in a living church by a dying world. That's what this world desperately needs to see. They need to see that the transforming power of the resurrection is effective in my life and in your life. And what I am saying is that what has grieved me so much as I look at the church, not just this church, because I really do believe that God is doing a great work here at Cross Connection Church. Even if the last 17 months have been a time of great pruning, there's beautiful fruit going on here at this church. In fact, Right now, as I'm in this room looking at this place where I'm recording, we've got tables set up because we have an outreach that we're doing um, just before this airs on Saturday. We're doing an outreach and nearly half of the people who've been coming here on Sunday mornings are coming to help with this outreach. That's great fruit of what God is doing. But as I look at the, the church as a whole in the West, the big C church as it's sometimes called, it seems like the, the power of the resurrection has been kind of overshadowed by all the chaos that has gone on in our world in the last 17 months. And the effects of the chaos has only kind of brought out or inflamed people's flesh, their impatience, their anger, their unkindness, their unwillingness to forgive, their unwillingness to give people any sort of distance. It's a, it's a crazy time that we've been going through. And so the power of the resurrection, the transforming power of it needs to be seen in a living church by a dying world. In what ways? There are so many different ways. I could spend weeks talking about the ways, but I don't have weeks, I have minutes. In fact, I've been going for quite a while now, so I gotta wrap this up. So I wanna talk about one necessary way in which the transforming power of the resurrection should be evident in you and in me if we believe these things. In the church, how should this transforming power be seen? And like I said, over the last 17 months, this transforming power has been overshadowed by our flesh because of all the things that have kind of inflamed our flesh. But in a very sad and bad way, it's been overshadowed. But I, I want to sh show from the scriptures one very necessary way that 
this power of the resurrection should be seen in us. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you're following along in a Bible, you can open to, uh, I'm sorry, not Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. And I've already talked about this today and in previous weeks I've referenced this passage of Scripture because in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing about the humility and exaltation of Jesus. And he says this in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, that Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of a man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we have already hit on this passage even today, just a little bit. But what I want to do is to close this message today at this point with what Paul says just before he comes to those words, which those words were probably one of the earliest Christian hymns. And why does Paul include this Christian hymn, one of the earliest, probably well-known Christian hymns of his time? Why does he include that to this letter to this church in Philippi. Well, when you dig a little bit deeper into this letter, I believe the reason becomes clear because the church at Philippi was a church that was near to Paul's heart. He loved the people in the city of Philippi, but they, when Paul wrote this letter to them, they were a divided church. Does that sound familiar? Division in the church is not new. It's something that you find all the way back in the early church in the New Testament. And one of the effects of division is always a tarnishing of the work and witness of the church. And so Paul, when he writes this letter to the church at Philippi, he is trying to get the church at Philippi to fix the division problem. So he uses this, this hymn about the coming of Christ, Christ's advent. He uses this hymn to talk about Christ's kenosis, what theologians call Christ's kenosis, as an example for what Paul wanted the Philippian Christians to do. What does he want them to do? Well, let me read to you the larger context of this, where this passage is found, and we'll look very, very briefly at what it was that Paul wanted the Philippians to do. Beginning at Philippians chapter 1, look at verse 27. There Paul says to the church at Philippi, "...only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, I want you to be united, united together with one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You're a divided church. I want you to be joined together. Verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation, Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being what? Like-minded, united together. This was a divided church. He says, make me happy by being united together, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He keeps hammering this home. I want you to be joined together, like-minded, joined together as one, of one accord, of one mind. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and was exalted. So Paul is saying, I want you to look out for one another. I want you to be of the same heart and of the same mind, joined together, esteeming one another, looking out for the interests of others, not only for your own interests. Let this mind, verse 5, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, already read this, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Bringing it all to this point. The transforming power of the resurrection should be evident in our lives by the way that we love and by the way that we lay our lives down for others. That's what we see in this text. The transforming power of the resurrection should be evident in our lives by the way that we love and the way that we lay our lives down for others. And really when you think about that, isn't that exactly what we see in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? He loved us and he laid his life down for us us. And Jesus said on the night that he would be betrayed, as he was with his disciples and he washed their feet, he says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you or to you. And I would say, aside from all the other things that the gospel and the power of the resurrection ought to do in our lives, one of the things that it ought to do is to compel us to love other people, both those within the body of Christ and those outside and to lay our lives down for others. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. And in this moment, in all the chaos that is happening, I mean, I, I keep telling my kids, we are living through things right now that are going to be, if the Lord doesn't return soon, they're going to be talked about, written about for hundreds of years. We are living through historic times. I mean, sometimes you get to live in times where there's not a lot of history that's happening and, and things are pretty good and okay. It has not been like that the last 17 months, and it doesn't seem like it's going to change in the near future. And for people who are Christians, whose life has been transformed by the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ, we need to be those that it is evident in us. And one of the ways that it will be evident is in the way that we love other people and lay our lives down for them. In the very same passage that Jesus said, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. He says, by this will all people know that you are my followers. By this will all people know that you have been radically transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that you love one another. And so may it be that God does that work in us to the point where we realize that we should let nothing be done by selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, we esteem others better than ourselves. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others, because this is exactly what Jesus did when he came to the world. Father God, I pray as we close out this series, as we have considered the general revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God, as we consider the special revelation that you through prophets have revealed what you like and what you're like. Lord, as you have revealed yourself, Jesus, you came to the earth that we might know you. All of these things are proven by the resurrection and there is evidence that the resurrection happened and that it is reasonable for us to believe that these things happened. But if we believe that it is true and if it is true, it ought to change us in a very powerful way. And so I pray for myself. I pray for this church. I pray for the church at large in America, in the world, that you would do a work in us by the transforming power of the resurrection and that we would shine brightly in such a way that people would look at us and they would say, those people love like Christ and they lay down their life like Christ. God, do a work in your church, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.